Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that, again, we thank you for sending your son to us, uh, that we might know how it is that you feel about us, that, that, that you feel great love, great jealousy for us, and um, that you desire to, to have us uh, for yourself. Uh, for you know that that's where we will be most happy and most fulfilled, most, um, most content. And so we pray that as we uh, consider your word, um, that you would, by your spirit, uh, you would stir our affections uh, to love your son, the, the true and living word, and that uh, we might, seeing him live and be filled with joy. And we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning, we are beginning a sermon series on the book of Zechariah. Right? We, we kind of flop between Old Testament and New Testament. So we just finished James, and we'll be moving now to the Old Testament, to the, to the prophet Zechariah. And this sermon series will run through the summer, and it will it will run all the way up actually to the beginning of Advent at the end of November. And Zechariah is admittedly not a, a portion of scripture that is frequently read. And yet you'll find it has passages in it that you are probably quite familiar with, right? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That familiar passage, often referenced on Palm Sunday, is from Zechariah 9. Or how about this one? I will pour out a spirit of compassion and supplication on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that when they look on the one whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. That too is Zechariah. Zechariah 12. There's also this one, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Again, Zechariah chapter 13 this time. You will notice that, that much of this familiar content, though, is in the latter half of the book. Scholars have identified a, a division in the book after chapter 8. And broadly speaking, chapters 1 through 8 are, are filled with visions or dreams that focus on, on how the, the Hebrew people should understand their present situation against the backdrop of the past. While chapters 9 through 14 look towards the future of the Hebrew people. As with any book, though, we'll begin at the beginning, right? In chapter 1 this morning. And the first eight chapters of the book focus on the fulfillment the Hebrew people experienced when they returned to the land of Israel after a long exile during which they were passed between conquering nations in the Near Eastern world. And the opening verse of chapter 1 sets the time and location as Jerusalem during the second year of Darius's reign in Persia. Darius's prede predecessor, Cyrus, had issued a decree several years earlier allowing the Hebrew people to return to their land and rebuild their temple. It was a moment of fulfillment, and yet it was incomplete. The people rejoiced for the state of grace that had come upon them, and yet they recognized when they were settled in the land that there was much work yet to do. In the book of Ezra, Ezra 
recounts how the reception in Israel was, was cold and antagonistic. They're, they were aliens in their own land. They were unwanted, and, and this was evident in the opposition they received when they were building the temple. Those who built had only one hand with which to work, because their other hand had to hold a weapon with which to protect themselves should opposition quickly arise. It was hasty and inconsistent work that resulted in the construction of a temple that made the older generation, those who remembered the great Solomonic temple, weep. They wept at the sight of this inferior building. And in a way, this sad temple was a symbol of their entire experience after returning to the land from Persia. They had plenty of reason to rejoice. They were no longer lost in a foreign land. And now they even had a temple where they could worship again. But it still felt incomplete. It wasn't quite satisfying. There was work to be done and to, to fully realize the promises of God that he had begun in bringing them back from exile in Persia. God had been gracious to him, to them, but his grace didn't eliminate all of their problems. That's why the opening verses of the prophecy contain a call to repentance. Zechariah was instructed by God to tell the people, return to me and I will return to you. Despite the fact that they had been restored to the land of promise, penitence was still necessary. The fact that penitence was still necessary betrays the reality that their restoration was not deserved or earned. It was an act of grace. God sent a sinful people into exile, and he brought a sinful people back. There had been no change in them. The change that initiated their return was in the heart of God. Satisfied with the time served in a foreign land, God chose to have mercy, to extend grace to his people by bringing them home. And it was this grace that was to provide them with the strength necessary to undertake the difficult work that remained before them. The grace of God was to be fuel for their penitence, and it was to be motivation for them to do the difficult work ahead. From this position of grace, the the people could evaluate their history with, with a clarity that they lacked when they felt themselves under the weight of judgment. God's grace provided them with the space to honestly confess their guilt and lament the sins of their ancestors so that they could turn from their ways and not repeat their mistakes. As a father, I have found that when you discover something in your house destroyed or defaced with a crayon by one of your children, how you confront your child about their behavior makes a world of difference in the ability they have to respond. If you point to the crayon on the wall and you point to them and you ask your child in aggravated tones, who did this? Did you do this? Then they will clam up and become defensive or evasive. But if you get down on the ground and you take your child into your lap and you begin with assurances of your love before you ask them in softer tones if they drew on the wall or put a sticker on the TV, then they feel they have the space to respond and to confess their guilt, right? Putting them in a position of grace 
allows them to respond in penitence. And this is exactly what we see God has done with his people as the book of Zechariah opens. He has put them into a position of grace. They are settled in the land again, as though they were settled in his lap. It's a position of favor and grace. And through the prophet Zechariah, God calls them to penitence. And he shows them from that position of grace their sins of their forefathers, warning them that those relations extend beyond blood and manifest in tendencies towards sin. Their ancestors are a mirror in which the children can see their potential clearly. Therefore, God warns them in verse 4, don't be like your ancestors. Your ancestors, where are they? My words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake them? And in verse 6, we get to hear the response that this historical lesson and warning had on the people from this position of grace. They repented. And they said, the Lord of hosts has dealt with us according to our ways and deeds, just as he planned to do. They saw their potential for sin in the mistakes of their ancestors, and they took their corporate history as an opportunity to personally repent. From their position of grace, they were able to admit that they deserved anything they received. They were able to see the grace of God and so be grateful for it. And it's this experience of the grace of God that turns anything into an opportunity to repent. The grace of God sets the heart of the believer hunting for sin, even asking the Holy Spirit's assistance to reveal what he or she is blind to seeing with their own natural powers of observation. This is a posture of life appropriate for anyone who wants to live as a citizen of God's kingdom, which is a kingdom defined no longer by physical boundaries or cultural markers, the kingdom of God permeates and transcends all boundaries and cultures. And the kingdom of God in this extended reality is introduced to us in the gospel with none other than a call to repentance. John the Baptist was first. He appeared in the wilderness of Judea proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And after him was Jesus, the Son of God incarnate. And his message was the same, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. A penitent posture befits anyone who claims to be a citizen of God's kingdom. And so the first thesis of Martin Luther's famous 95 Theses proves to be true. He wrote, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. But he calls us to repentance while simultaneously making known to us his gracious intentions. For Christ called for repentance with a voice produced by air passing through vocal cords. Here was the Son of God in the flesh. He had become a human being like one of us before he called to repentance. Thereby he elevated all of humanity to a position of grace. God was with us on the earth. Still to this day, he looks like us. But he intended to be even more gracious still by bringing a people back from the figurative land where they had been living in exile. It was the land of sin. 
And the home to which he restores them is not a physical land, but the favor of God the Father, filling us with the Spirit that we might walk always in the presence of God. He does not give us a land to walk in, but a spirit in which we can walk anywhere. Jesus spent his life, and his life was spent to extend this grace to those who would love him. He puts us in a position of grace, and out of that grace, he calls his children to penitence. He sets us at ease so we can evaluate our own lives and the lives of our ancestors and lament what, they see, what we see without fear of judgment, but with the hope of a life transformed. And so we see that in the return of the Hebrews to the land of Israel, we have a foreshadowing of God setting his people into the ultimate position of grace. The pattern flows from his character, and so he repeats himself throughout history. But the ultimate and original event of God's grace is the incarnation, obedience, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Everything else, including those things that took place earlier in time, are an echo of the life and work of Jesus. If you are a Christian, then Jesus has set you in a position of grace by doing for you what you could never do for yourself. He has taken you up into his lap. And from there, he calls you to repent and to lament. But that's to be the entire life of believers. It is a life that fosters gratitude and humility. But the reality for Christians, similar to what the Hebrews experienced in Israel, is that even though we find ourselves living in a place of grace, we also find it to be a place of incompletion. We find in ourselves a tendency towards sin, right? Unholy thoughts that afflict us in body and mind that we often indulge. The Apostle Paul testifies to this inner conflict in Romans 7, where he laments by admitting, I do not understand myself. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. How he speaks for so many of us with those words. But this sense of incompletion extends beyond us, extends geographically to our cities, our, our county, our country, our world. We see there is much work yet to do. In Venezuela and Afghanistan, there are people starving to death due largely to dysfunctional and corrupt governments. In Ukraine, there is war that continues to drag on. In China, there's genocide. And in our country, there is every kind of violence and moral decay, broken families, mental health crisis, and jails full of people who really don't belong there. There's much work to be done. And this sense of Incompletion extends beyond us, beyond us. It extends geographically into our cities, our county, our country, our world, and extends beyond us temporally. We have the opportunity to look back from the position of grace that we enjoy in Jesus Christ and lament the, lament the sins of our ancestors. And we have done some of that here at First Presbyterian Church as we've lamented together the ways in which the church in America has participated in the perpetuation of racial oppression and suspicion. Our denomination is doing the same. On June 24th, the, the 42nd meeting of the General Assembly of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church approved the creation of a pastoral letter entitled Racial Lament and Hope. 
we can lament and we can repent because of the grace we now enjoy in Jesus Christ. His grace helps us to use everything wrong in the present and the past as a, a personal opportunity for our own personal repentance. We know that but for the grace of God, there go I. Right? Many of you by now have seen video of, of Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars. Denzel Washington witnessed it firsthand. He was there, right? It was Denzel who warned Will Smith that it's when you're at your highest point that the devil comes for you, right? These were the words that Will Smith repeated in his acceptance speech. And yet when Pastor T.D. Jakes interviewed Denzel Washington days later, Denzel admitted out loud, but for the grace of God, there go I. Although he hadn't assaulted anyone at an award ceremony, the fact that he witnessed someone else doing so provided, with him, provided him with an opportunity to see himself, to search himself, to confess that at least the potential for such behavior is in him. It was an opportunity for him to cultivate humility, perhaps even to repent of anger he harbored in his own heart, an anger that had not yet given birth to such behavior, but an anger akin to the kind that drove Will Smith that day. The potential was there, and only by the grace of God the reality was not. It's a confession that we each need to make as we enjoy the grace of God. Humility, penitence, lament, these are the ways in which we strengthen our citizenship in God's kingdom and in the grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. May you, therefore, find hope and penitence and humility through lament. And may you find that as you return to God, he's returning to you, running to meet you as you return from a foreign land, rejoicing over you and restoring you to a place within his home forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.